0: Matthew, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. Thanks, Owen. Today, we're going to talk about macro. We're going to talk about lessons learned from companies. Uh, And I think this is going to be quite up and down the vertical. And by that, I mean, we're going to look from the top down and the bottom up, hopefully, to try and illustrate your investment philosophy and how you think about the world of investing. But maybe to kick things off, I've been listening to quite a fair bit of you know, some of the comments you've had in the past and I've spoken to the team before at Wilson Asset Management and they've talked to me like, you got to ask him about macro and get his views on things. So um, so they've kind of thrown you in the deep end there, but I know you'd like to talk about this stuff anyway. So maybe just to break the ice is how would you describe the macroeconomic environment right
1: now? Yeah, well, the, the great thing about the macro environment, it changes very quickly and, and what a perfect example this week um you know with a hundred basis points coming off the short end of the the, the rate market so the, the the environment's changed dramatically um from you know two two weeks ago we talk, have power talking about you know higher for longer um that's all changed with the the svb um collapse so yeah, so dramatically changing um again forward rates coming out of the market There's talk about you know lending standards being tightened across the US. So um, that environment is not great uh, for economic earnings or activity. So um, the environment has changed dramatically and it's gone from, you know, more rate hikes this year to actually rate cuts this year. So um, that's all happened within a week. So huge mm. change in the environment.
0: Mm. That is, uh, a, like you said, a dramatic shift, right? It's like almost since like the peak of Everest. Uh, you've got to just realise we're at the top. Um, but uh, there was one actual follow-up question that I had. I was just briefly mentioning it off air is how much macroeconomic variables and factors and thinking goes into your process, but not necessarily like it's just like that's the question, but how has it changed through time? And in particular, maybe if you can map that to your career, what you were doing in earlier parts of your career, but like when you joined Wilson and now and how the macro lens has affected your process.
1: Yeah that's an interesting question because it's a multifaceted question too because macro becomes more important around inflection points. So macro is very um, you know critical to thinking around those big inflection points between you know rate hike cycles and rate cutting cycles. Mid cycle not so important because everyone just goes about their business. Um, you won't watch, uh, at the moment everyone's watching CPI prints. Mid-cycle, no one will be watching a CPI print mm. and there's no market reaction because we're mid-cycle, the policy tools are essentially neutral, um, not that important. For, for me personally, I used to manage large-cap money before and multi-asset money before uh, coming to Wilson Asset Management. And then um, when I first came here, started managing small-to-mid-cap money and the macro is really not that important for a lot of these companies because they are growing from a very small base and can grow quite um, aggressively uh, into a market versus the larger companies trade more in line with GDP, you know, plus or minus a few percent if they're lucky. So um, the more mature companies have higher sensitivity to macro variables, whereas the smaller mid-cap companies, um, ultimately they, they will get caught up in macro eventually, but in between and around inflection points, they can move less because they can actually still grow because they're coming from a small base. So um, it's again, macro is important for the the small to mid cap to large cap. The the difference there is large cap much more important, and then macro is more important around those big inflection points. Mid cycle, um, everyone sort of forgets about it again. Mm.
0: It's interesting, um, are, are you referring to, when you say like the sensitivity, are you talking about like the fundamental performance of the business? Because some people might say, well, you know, small caps tend to be very volatile in the
1: share prices. So are you referring to like business fundamentals there? Yeah, yeah, more the fundamentals of the the company, you know, the environment they operate in. Like, let's say Australia GDP gets downgraded by, you know, 20, 30 basis points. That will have a direct impact on a lot of the large companies because everyone uses these economic impacts uh, or sensitivities in their models, whereas the small caps will probably just w- would look straight through it. So um, mm. it's more around, yeah, the, the fundamentals, not, nothing to do real, um, with, with the share prices as such.
0: That's interesting because then if you think like that, I guess, then um, you might be inclined, if you are in that small mid-cap space, you might be inclined to think, well, that's actually an opportunity for my investment process to take advantage of that kind of, I guess, dislocation between fundamentals and price. Um, How about then, so if we just maybe zoom in on like the WAM leaders and the money that you're managing now, how much of your time spent thinking about the portfolio is macro? Like I asked you before, like what do you get up and check in the morning? Maybe that's a way to illustrate how you think, like the first most important thing when you're thinking about the portfolio today how do you think like macro informs that portfolio specifically? And maybe you could talk about some of the things you do each day to, to get, get a pulse check.
1: Yeah, it's a um, very good question as well because there's so much information. Our, our game of investing money is about gathering information and trying to get the mm. best information you can. So so what I'll be watching outside of Market Hours is around obviously you've got the European Open coming through, you get some signals, you go got economic data coming through watching the markets rates markets just to see where money is flowing and also risk appetite as well because you get um as we talked off air like bond markets process data there's less emotion whereas equities you know the pricing hope and dreams and blue sky and you know it's either all on or all off there's there's a little bit more emotion in the equity market so you mm. get a, a more pure read i guess of how actually the economic conditions are going and also where money is flowing. So the things I'll be watching are, are rates, you know, short-end rates, uh, the belly, long-end rates, um, you know, volatility as well. So some of the volatility measures in equities like the the VIX and the move indexes, which give you an idea of how much risk is or, or the appetite, I guess, of, um, you know, risk-taking in, in, in those markets or how much people are willing to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, positioning as well, like... Um, you get a lot of money these days, like CTAs, which are momentum mm-hmm. strategies. And we try and check how they are positions because we never really want to be on these momentum trades when they turn. So th- we look at all that and then we look at equity. So I'll look at all those things before I look at the equity market, uh, what happened overnight. And then what I'll do is every every day check the, the sector performance of the US markets and the, the European markets to try and get a read of where money is flowing, what's performing in that environment, but then marrying it up to how rates performed. And sometimes they don't marry up and then you think, well, that's maybe the equity market has got it wrong in the short term. So we're always trying to triangulate data to make sure it makes sense. And mm. the reason why we do that is to try and eliminate as much risk as we can when we make investments. So We're always trying to get the odds on our favour and we find if we look at all these different data points, it can quite often help you.
0: Hmm. How Just to say for context, how much of your day, on an average day, it's like a typical day if you have one of those, um, would you say is spent thinking about those things and how much of it is spent on the company by company, like at that level?
1: Yeah, it's during the day, it's quite often all the decisions have been made or all, all the framework about looking at macro is done outside of market hours. So oh, okay. um, quite often I'll be like the Australian, the Asian um, trading hours is not that crucial for for the macro environment. It does. It can quite often move the other way. Like in Asia, oil will be up and then Europe and US open and then oil will be down. So Asia is not the greatest read for, for the macro. Um, so often just watch um, at night. So I'll stay up quite often, you know, very late to watch the, the US data releases, which can, when, when the daylight savings move apart, it, it becomes a bit of a nightmare because it can be like 12.30, 1.30 um, releases, but um, that's winding back now, thankfully, and you can get around 11.30, 12.30 releases. So quite often watch the releases come out and then you, you're trying to gauge the reaction to how the market interprets those releases to see if you know the the good news is good news you know good news is bad news and all that just trying to work out how the market's positioned so all that thinking around macro framework is done outside of market hours during market hours it's engaging with the australian market we're seeing companies talking with companies we're talking with contacts so all the macro decisions are predominantly made outside of market hours um, unless there's an RBA decision, or we've got some big economic data in Australia, which could shape the interest rate view. So CPI, um, employment numbers, and all that. That they are important, but predominantly all the macro work is done outside of uh, Australian trading hours.
0: I might ask one follow up on this actually, if I can, and think about this from like the bottom up approach, like how it actually is expressed in the portfolio. In that, how many? like new ideas would you have in the portfolio say uh, if we took maybe however you want to frame maybe it's like every six months every year like every quarter i don't know like but what i'm kind of getting at is like a full position for you like how many of those big decisions do you make because one of one part of me is thinking okay he's thinking a lot about like the macro lens each and every day how much of that is noise how much that is signal and how does that translate into the portfolio if you get what i mean so i'm trying to gauge that kind of like push through from signal to execution in the portfolio.
1: Yeah, like we're highly active. So we're, we're making adjustments daily. We, we don't change the positions. We don't, Um, I, I shouldn't say we don't, but we quite often wouldn't trade, you know, from in at 100 basis points to out of the portfolio. It'll be adjustments. So 100 basis points, we might go down to 50 or 150. Right. And we make a lot of those decisions daily. So we have, the, the portfolio is very active, but you're right, there's a lot of noise. So the, the way we're trying to do it is we have three pillars where we're looking at the macro, then the fundamental analysis, which is the company, and then positioning analysis, which is around you know, where is flow happening, Is it, you know where are the, the crowded trades, is the market long or short, different um, commodities in particular. So ideally, we try and get all those three things lining up, um, but quite often in reality, that will never happen. Um, so throughout the throughout the day, there'll be new information coming out from Japan or China. Uh, China is very important. If there is a clear signal from that, we will trade that. We'll, we'll adjust the portfolio weight. So very active. There's constant adjustments um, when we get proper signals. But a lot of the signals, as you suggested, can be noise. Um, the the skill is dissecting which is noise and which is actually market moving, and have. You know, some duration on that trend versus just a flash in the pan.
0: Mm. I saw a um, economic update you did with Tom Petrovsky from Comsec, uh, and this was going back to August 2022, I think it was. And at the time, you were talking about the macro environment and how things had shaped since COVID. And one of the things you said, he asked me, well, "What are some of the things that keep you up at night?" And I think you were talking about like credit spreads and maybe like a collapse, like some sort of event in that regard, and. Um, that was the thing that you were very mindful of. And like you said, just this week, you know, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, um, you know, I don't know how you characterise that, but basically traded to a point of collapse and the government's come in and rescued it effectively. How how do you characterise that as a signal? Because that seems like for it's like front page of the news, seems pretty big. Have you made any decisions on the back of that?
1: Yeah, like... It's, again, it's still up for debate about, you know, is this going to have um, a longer impact or not? Um, how did we, how did we react? We reduced some of our banking exposure because, again, quite often on equities they reduce risk first, then ask questions later. Mm. Often, so we went into like it's almost preservation mode. We actually reduced risk out of the portfolio because you know, whatever happens here. None of it's positive. Like you've got this, you've had, you know, two banks going under now in the US. You've got this, essentially it's like a one-year repo where people can trade, the banks can put in whatever collateral they want and they get liquidity. So you've got about a year to deal with it. They'll probably extend it if things to anyway. Um, but it hasn't really fixed the issue. And what we know for, for certain is lending stands will, will tighten in the US. And that's not great for economic activity the flip side is as interest rates fall you know in theory pe's could get better um so the financial conditions are improving the economic conditions are deteriorating so there's a there's a fine balance here but at the moment we're in everything into meltdown territory so mm-hmm. um the the correlation between rates and markets going up is broken finally which is very welcome to see um but the yeah the impacts we don't quite know yet but they are negative it's just to what degree they um will mm. impact global markets um the, the the impact has been dramatic already as far as rates markets goes and equities obviously uh, are filling it um pretty hard as well at the moment but uh, the one thing probably to to say is the australian banks are nothing like these um u.s regional banks so um not not to say they will go up from here but um you know, concerns around safety are un- unfounded.
0: Mm. That's um, it's 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 a good point you bring up there too. Like we're only a week into this saga, so I should mention that we're recording this on the fourteenth of March, and so there's the story is yet to play out. Um, one of the things I noticed when I was looking at the WAM Leaders portfolio in particular is that performance since COVID has actually been very strong, and like sig- significantly, you know, outperforming in this sh- in this like. I guess, a couple of years. And I was hoping you could just characterize that for us is why has it performed? Is it that macro piece that you said, like it's at those critical junctures where macro plays a huge role and therefore adds the performance or just how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's again, like you quite often think back and you know what, what led to the outperformance, but I guess since the GSC, we've been living in this environment of very low interest rates, um, and it's been very supportive for a certain sector of the market, um, predominantly you know, the, the techie end and the long-duration end of the market. I mean, what did we do well in, during COVID? I guess there was, a, there was a key event in March of 2020 um, and there was two camps, you know, economic depression, the world's going to end. And then the other camp was around looking at the fiscal policies which were being implemented and also the monetary policies and we went with that camp because probably the, the biggest lesson is the stock market is not the economy, and quite often people are like, "Why is the stock market going up when the economy is like in ruins?" It's like, well, you look at the the policy settings and the fiscal transfer uh, from the from the public sector to private sector, and there was enough cushion there where asset prices could go up and and would go up. So. We invested very heavily in that period when, you know, at at its darkest, uh, we just bought everything we could that was high quality. We knew the business model was sound. We knew they would trade through it. They had balance sheets which were, you know, robust. And we took up all the capital raisings, in, you know, in the banks and anything we could get our hands on in the capital raise we took. And that set us up for a really good um, period. And then I guess there was another critical point where interest rates... moving up and the market was in the inflation is transitory camp um rates will never move up there's too Mm. much debt in the world rates can't go above two percent on the on the 10-year rates um we took the opposing view and we were like the forward market was already there so it wasn't we were watching that move up and up and up and we're like the equity market was just ignoring it at a point and then all of a sudden on these inflection points it all happens in a day or two and if you're not positioned correctly you miss out on a large amount of performance so when the market file the equity market finally thought about interest rates rising i think we made it like 250 or 300 basis points of our performance in you know a few days so again mm-hmm. that set us up uh for that inflection point of rising rates um so yeah, inflection points are great if you can get them right um but generally you get a pretty good read on what's happening and the the other key point while we perform was around uh taking a position on china when they were um going to stimulate as well I- intra the um COVID lockdown period there was a point where um you know the property market everyone thought the property market was going to implode and uh, we managed to get that as well so um quite often those inflection points are good and i think the way the way we invest we try to do it through high quality companies we don't go up the risk curve too so Mm-hmm. that backdrop was very supportive of the way we invest because we weren't on zero interest rate um, policy settings um, for too long. Um, finally we came out of that and we could um, capitalize on that too because on when you have zero interest rates, a lot of the rubbish companies go up as well um, because there's just no um, you know barrier for these long duration assets to not go up people to speculate and you get a lot of speculation in all sorts of, um, different asset classes too. So um, we welcome that change. And again, the the period we're going through now, very much welcome too, because it's taking out some of those excesses and and bad businesses, which I'm hoping are allowed to happen and we don't get full bailouts again. Um so but again, the the propensity for pain is very low at the moment. So mm. uh, we've seen that already. So actually, that's an interesting
0: point if you're willing to dig into that. So we're obviously seeing dispersion between pretty poor quality companies, which will probably fail in this environment where there's higher rates and so on and so forth. Uh, we're already seeing that in like, I was chatting to a venture capitalist at the US earlier this week. You are saying something you know, along the lines of what they're reporting and what's actually happening on the ground is not the same thing. Um, what we're seeing on, this is the day of SVBs, you know, 60%-odd share price collapse, so keep that in mind. But it was saying what we're seeing on the ground is not, you know, what they're reporting. It's like, yeah, everything's not that great, but we'll be fine. like, no, it's actually radically different to this time six months ago. And I guess the question is, like, the dispersion that we're going to see with some companies really faltering, why, in your mind, is it important that we do see that washout as opposed to being saved?
1: Yeah, I guess it gets down to, you know, productivity and you know efficient use of capital you need to have these cleansing periods and i don't think we've had a real cleansing period since the gfc um you know we've had glimpses um you know 2012 2016 and 2018 and then i guess in COVID, but they've been very short-lived and it hasn't been i think there's been too many companies kept alive for these periods where and it's just not productive use of capital which is you know, in the economic theory, it's, it's all links back to standard of living and, and the like. It's all linked. You should allocate capital to the most efficient use. Um, so it's really just that big picture view of a uh, cleansing is not a bad thing if, you know, poor users of capital um, fail and the, the good, you know, more productive users of capital uh, survive. I mean, that's mm. how things should work in a normal functioning economy.
0: And I think the, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but the the venture capital end, like if you're taking the full spectrum of markets from uh, like, you know, uh, government bonds right through to, you know, you know, credit markets, then through to equities and then through to um, the the more speculative and then unlisted assets and venture, like ventures right at one end, maybe alongside some cryptocurrencies and things like that, where it's almost seems like that is going to be most afflicted by this type of thing. Would that be, do you think that's a fair characterization?
1: Yeah, I mean, on that end, uh, on the risk spectrum, it requires functioning capital markets because they all need capital. Um, these are not these are not uh, companies which are generating cash. So, the moment liquidity gets tight or credit spreads get tight, lending standards, uh, these things fail because they 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 burn money. They actually mm. need capital. They need functioning capital markets to stay alive. So, um, that that end of the market just gets decimated um, because they mm. can't survive. They just, they can't fund themselves.
0: Mm. Well, yeah. And um, I mean, if you add in a bank that seems to be lending long duration, uh, go you know, long duration into a tightening cycle, then <laughs> you probably end up with a few things like we've seen recently. Um, okay. So this is, this is quite interesting. Um, but I, I mean, if we, if we bring it back to the portfolio and how you're thinking now, so we step away from that kind of most. We'll say more speculative end, not completely speculative, but more speculative end. Um, I had a question which was along the lines of if inflation or if rates are persistent, how do you position position the portfolio for that? But maybe I won't give you that hypothetical framing. Maybe I'll just ask you how are you
1: positioning the portfolio now and how are you expressing that view? Right. So you really got to dissect, you know, short-term, medium-term, long-term. Short-term, we've been reducing risk, but that was something we've been do- doing for about three to six months too, taking a very defensive tilt in the portfolio, investing in high quality because we were looking at all the leading economic indicators. They were all um, pretty terrible, to be honest. Mm. Um, so we, were like, we, we weren't, weren't that confident on the um, economic environment and we thought interest rates would be cut from a falling economic environment and a falling inflation environment. So... We were going very defensive, but we didn't want to go into the speculative end of the falling rate part of the market where you go the high growth and tech because we thought the economic environment was so weak. We'd rather play the the more, you know, the very safe cash flow companies, which are infrastructure um, companies, you know, the, the, the old bond proxies, I guess you could call them mm. that benefit from lower rates, but their cash flows are fairly sound. Um, So that was the way we were positioned. And and what I guess the the short-term view now is I'm trying to work out if short-term rates have overshot from this shock. Um, We've dropped, you know, as 100 bips in the US. Um, I I was just looking before the the Aussie one-year rate. I think we're about 40 bips under the cash rate at the moment. So I'm just trying to work out if maybe the bond market has gone, been bid too much in the short term. So I, I'm always thinking about contrarian trade. So I'm thinking, well, maybe some of these insurers look all right, which have been sold off on the back of um, falling rates um, in Australia more aggressively than the, the banks, surprisingly. So um, always looking for these contrarian trades. So that's short term. But the overarching portfolio now is high quality it's companies that will benefit from Lower rates, eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, still backing China as well. So, the, the the measure I look at the China total social financing, which is sort of like a broad credit measure in China, has has beaten the last two months in January and February by a large margin, that's normally a good leading indicator of activity in China. So, um, we've got expressing that through BHP and Rio, so the bulks more so than industrial metal, metals because. Of the faltering economy at the moment like industrial metals more linked to global activity whereas iron ore is very very much china focused so position that way um consumer staples uh, position quite heavily in those as well so the woolworths and coals of the world um you know trying to make sure the portfolio is as resilient as possible but always keeping our eye open about when to add in risks. so you don't want to stay defensive for too long because all of a sudden, you could get this, um, you know, Fed speed coming up over the next week or two, where they say, "Hey, we're we're pausing, we could cut." Mm-hmm. You just never know. So once that happens, the leadership of the market changes very quickly. So quite often, you will have to run a little bit of a barbell approach, where you have a little smaller holdings in some of these companies which will benefit from that narrative shift. So, um, but yeah, overall, the portfolio I classify as high quality, uh, defensive, with that China bet still embedded in the portfolio um, massively underway Australian banks more so on their their NIM outlook but you know fortunately it's been beneficial because of the the stuff going on off in the US as well um, but that's probably the best way to sum up the portfolio at the moment
0: how would you just in, interesting like I know a lot of our listeners and viewers would be interested in the bank stocks you said the NIM outlook there is kind of leading that trade
1: what would make you change your mind? Yeah, so what happened was the Australian banks were meant to have positive net interest margin performance, basically up to the last RBA hike, Um, and that was what the whole market thought, and that was going to be you know back when the back in February maybe that was like you know middle of the year, so you could have been like August before the the net interest margin started declining, that was bought all the way forward to. Um, you know, almost the end of last year through competition. So what would get me excited now? It's hard to actually find a, a reason to get excited about the Australian banks because generally you want to be buying them in a rising interest rate cycle, not a falling interest rate cycle because not only will the competition squash NIMS but falling rates will squash NIMS as well. So it'd be, yeah, it's hard to actually paint a scenario where you could go, let's go all in on banks at the moment because we're going to potentially go into an easing cycle. Um, So Mm. I I can't even paint a picture at the moment um, to Mm. go overweight Australian banks.
0: Mm. How far down... Another thing you mentioned before was, you know, you might have that barbell approach. How far down the market cap spectrum do you go to look for those ideas?
1: Yeah, the one thing, like, we we get most of our... um, our performance through the top 50 companies, we actually don't really go down too far because we find our approach needs liquidity and Mm. in quite often in these smaller companies, you can't, like we we may see data move, but then we can't actually action it. So, um, yeah, there's really not much outside the top 50. Um, We do have some companies between the 50 and 100, but it's a very small percentage. So when we talk about barbell approach, it'd be more through the, um, just thinking like, you know, like let's just call, for example, a Zero, a WiseTech, an REA, a Seek, more of those companies, not mm. at, not the 150, 150 to 200 type stocks because they're just too illiquid in the Australian market.
0: Yeah. And those are still pretty big companies that you mentioned. They're in the billions of dollars. So, um, but when you're managing more than a billion dollars or something, <laughs> you know, larger than that, you've got to be really mindful of the liquidity constraints, right? Um Okay, if I switch gears now away from this kind of macro portfolio positioning um, bent, I, I was, one of the questions I was curious to ask you is uh, who has influenced your the way you invest today? Like if I th- say to you, well, which person, whether it's through a book, maybe it's someone you know, maybe it's like a family member, maybe it's a colleague, who has influenced you the most in your career and the way you think about investing today and what impact have they had on you?
1: Yeah, it's... Again, very good question. I mean, um, probably the the one that comes to mind, top of mind, is Stanley Um I, I just love everything he he talks about. Like he, the way he views the world can be like. I mean, he even jokes himself about being a little bit simplistic on the way he views the world. But I mean, his track record speaks for itself. He's it's just um, quite amazing. And I guess it, why him. I mean, it's back to the you know the, the infamous uh, Bank of England story. you know when he was working with Soros and you know, Scott Bessent, um, just having the the courage to or conviction to actually trade these ideas in large amounts. I I really admire that because there's so many smart people around there, but they just don't have the courage to act on it. Um, so for me, Stanley Druckenmiller, just the way he thinks, the way he, you know, he says he's the thing that resonated with me was he said he's best leading macro leading indicators talking with companies. I mean, that approach to me, I resonate with versus some of the, um, you know, more the quant style I, I don't really resonate with because I just, you know, algorithms with correlations and all that. Whereas discretionary global macro, those guys I love because, you know, you got Marcus, you got politics and, um, you know they take a holistic view and you know put on large trades as, and, and really back their conviction.
0: Mm. Um, okay, I've got, I've got kind of a I guess another question around that is so when you you get these type of views around markets, you mentioned before that the equity market can be quite noisy because it gets quite emotional. So how do you how do you think about the valuation of individual companies and in particular how do you like how do you do you do do like say like a full discounted cash flow analysis are you looking for something like more multiples based or how do you think about that because i'm thinking in trying to put myself in your shoes i want to express a view like say nim compression on banks and i want to make sure that i'm not you know selling deeply undervalued stocks that because i'm selling deeply undervalued it's going to lessen the the impact of my view, if that makes sense. Like it's going to run counter to my overall view, my top-down view.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the best way I find anyway is looking at um, multiples and looking at the historical multiples, peer multiples. Because um, really, like we, we live in a relative world. Capital is always trying to find a home. So mm. let, let's say, for example, like um, an example is probably a good way to walk through it. Like Dix is at the moment the op, the office um, mm. REIT. Trading at like a 35% discount to its net tangible assets, and you just look at that and go, Well, that to me doesn't make sense at the moment, Uh, you know, especially if bond rates are going to fall. Um, so it's always looking at relative valuations and you know, putting it back to you know, net tangible assets or historical PEs or you know, peer comp PEs or you know, and looking outside of Australia as well, like looking at global peers as well, and it's always just trying to. Like, as, as I said, we, we live in a relative world, so you're trying to work out is the outlook for this company getting better or worse at any mm. point in time and is it reflected in its valuation? So it's more the incremental. Doing a DCF, like, personally I find is a waste of time because it's full of assumptions that change, you know, potentially daily. Mm. Um, and you the, the more assumptions you make, the more errors you'll make too. Um, so it's more the way we look at it is more directional. Our condition is going to get better or worse with this company, and is it reflected in the price or not? Mm. What is um? You may not have this on top of your head, but what is the like? What's a typical holding period for a position? Yeah, like it's actually quite long. So around sixty percent of the portfolio has been held for three years. Right. But the like when people see our turnover figures, they think you know we're just trading in and out, but we're actually like pulling levers constantly, like daily, trying to push weights up or down based off new information. So we're very much data-driven, trying to take into account new information, then trying to reflect it instantly. So we're always trying to have the portfolio reflect the current environment every single day. So we're always, like, in theory, we should be able to make money in any market. We're not like a style bent, like, you know, like a, a value or a growth. Mm. You know, we're trying to make money every day and data to, you know, input that in and then adjust the portfolio every time we see new information which could change a view.
0: Mm. Uh, I've got another question which is kind of like it's like an inverse, it's like an inverting with a tweak, which is if you look around, so you said Stanley Druckmiller before, if you look around at other investors, um that maybe you read or that you read about in the media or something, I'm, I'm curious to know which investors do you admire so that you admire the way that they invest, but you would never do that, if that makes sense. So I'm looking for like, oh, that's, and this is this whole idea of being like humble in the way you invest and not necessarily trying to emulate everyone, just trying to stay in your lane. So I'm curious, are there investors that you look at and you think, I really admire what they do, but I could never do that?
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, all the time. There's, <laughs> um, you know, people are investing tech or growth. Uh, um, you know, I, I can't do that. But I guess the one for me is Jamie Simons from uh, Renaissance Technologies. Um, you know, very, like, highly successful, what an amazing track record, but very mathematical-driven, very quant-driven, you know, having computer algorithms, running all these correlations. Like, I, I wouldn't even know where to start with that stuff. So mm. um, I admire him. Like so much, like the track record, like unbelievable. But could I do it? A hundred percent, no. Like uh, <laughs> he's like obviously, you know, PhD in mass, and um, you know, started from a bedroom, just build up this amazing business. I mean, just incredible.
0: Mm, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where you just need to know which lane you're in or which corner of the market's yours, and stay in that part and just admire someone like that yeah i i totally when i realized when i came across him started reading about him watching interviews i just thought to myself well i'm happy not to be a quad investor because that's not the opposition that i want across the ring from me um Mm -hmm. i've got i've got two more questions for you matthew one is um so we've kind of touched on this which is this idea of um thinking about risk or risk versus return at least i'm curious what Things do you look to to measure risk, and specifically, what I'm trying to get here is like a lot of the academic theory. How much of that do you use, and how much of it would you disagree with in practice? I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I without being disrespectful to academia, I'd, I'd use zero of the <laughs> academic risk measures um, because it's all built on what I think is a flawed assumption of normal distribution, which we know works. During times where it actually doesn't matter if it works or not, but when it when it fails is when you need it to work and it doesn't work. So it's <laughs> actually a flawed system. But it's what do you do? I mean, it's probably the best of what we've got. I mean, you got to make assumptions around distributions, but use none of that. I look more at market-based risk. So we touched on it um, previously around what is the market paying for risk at the moment, like with the you know the VIX measure of equities and the move index of bonds you know and that's i'm I'm really just trying to work out what risk is embedded in the market how people position so for me that's risk and then on the portfolio level i I guess the the risk i'd sort of point to is again it's a bit of a technical term but beta of the portfolio so Mm. how will the portfolio we manage move with the current market you know and beta is not stable as well, so again, it's flawed. But um, you can sort of see, like, if I'm running a beta of .98, it means my portfolio won't move as much as the market. So if I've got a real defensive feel at the moment, I should be running a beta lower than the um, the market beta, um, just intuitively. But again, it's it's more of a feel you have over time, like you know when your portfolio is running a bit hot versus a bit cold, and and trying to balance it. So unfortunately there's nothing in academia that will help you. Um, Obviously it helps with hedging and the like, but again, hedges start to fail when the moments you need the most. So Mm. um, yeah, unfortunately there's not a great risk measure out there to help you with equities.
0: I feel like if you're taking a strong view on banks, your beta would be, well, it's not necessarily different,
1: but it, it may have to be compensated in other ways in the portfolio. Yeah, no, that's 100% right. Like you, the portfolio is like a an evolving um, piece of all these different pieces of of the puzzle, and you have to be cognizant. If you are like underweight banks, okay, that's you know a big part of the index. So where are my overweights and underweights, and how will the portfolio perform? Well, let's just say you know banks start um, rallying. And I at the moment we've got a like 10% underweight on banks. Like well, we we don't invest like versus the index, but just just for um mm. for comparison purposes. Um yeah, I'll be left way behind if if the banks run. So you've got to have a high conviction bet, and then you've got to balance it with other parts of the portfolio too. So running resources, uh, they generally have quite a high beta. So mm. yeah, it's all it's all a balancing act because you never like the, the thing I learned with, you know, the greatest investors, they always progressively or scale in bets as well. You don't want to go all in all at once because quite often you get it wrong and then you have to retreat. So um, scaling is that that's why I think the model we run works quite well because you can scale in and out quite quickly based on, you know, changing in data. So, yeah, it's, it's nothing perfect is in, in investing with, you know, betas and the like, but um, mm. that, that's sort of how we run it.
0: Uh, I should know the answer to this, but I'm assuming the answer is n- no—that you do not use derivatives in the portfolio.
1: No, we don't use derivatives. No.
0: If if you could, would you for the hedging and risk management?
1: Um, potentially, um, yeah. Like like in periods like the last few months, maybe would have run, you know, like a small protection, like a you know. Um, you know, volatility, you might be running mm. a, vol- a vol position to, you know, it, it'd be a slight negative cost of carry running it in the background, but it's almost like an insurance premium where yeah. you're running it, you know, maybe 1% of the portfolio. So you're giving up 1% of the portfolio return uh, for protection. So, I mean, it would, would have worked really well, uh, but that's that's definitely something I'd, I'd look at if I had the ability to run derivatives. But... Um, yeah, I mean, that's probably the one that stands out most is just downside protection.
0: It's interesting because I find that cost of carry and the, the cost of protection throughout the cycle can be quite harmful. It can be yeah. very harmful for um, the manager's returns. But at moments of opportunity, maybe strategically, they can be used for that hedging. Unfortunately, obviously, there you have the vol factor, which increases the price of the, the protection. But um, I find that maybe those moments are when they add a lot of value.
1: Yeah, 100%. Like you could sort of like like just thinking out loud, like timing it. You're never going to be um, buying VOL in an interest rate cutting cycle, like once it gets underway. Um, you know, you never buy VOL um, or go long, like, you know, the first part of a hiking cycle. But, you mm. know, around, around these inflection points, you could really, um, it, that makes sense versus in just like a blind every year I'm going to carry. One, I mean, that just to me doesn't make sense. You've got to be strategic about it, just like Mm. investing. Otherwise, you're actually not making a call. You just, that's, I'm just going to burn 1% of the fund every year just in case. I mean, Mm. that just doesn't sit right with me.
0: Yeah. And we've probably lost a few people when we just started talking about that. So I'm (laughs) conscious of that. But um, maybe that's a conversation you and I can have another time. Um, I've got one final question for you, which is more philosophical in nature. And this is just your own personal view, which is, um, what's one thing that you've learned about finance, investing, or even business, and um, that few people would agree with you on? Oh,
1: that's an extremely tough question. Um, I mean, it, it's not quite consensus, but like the, I think people forget it. Like the stock market isn't the economy. Yeah. I mean, it's such a valuable lesson when you um seen you know, it time and time again but it's so you get caught up emotionally with everything looks so bad and you know things are falling apart the like job losses and the like and um it's hard to separate yourself from that emotion but the stock market is definitely not the economy there is obviously there's linkages but then the stock market is forward looking so quite often in the darkest times is when people get the most depressed um but they're actually the best opportunities mm. um, so I guess it's not quite, I mean, it's pretty well known that that's the case, but I think people forget about it a lot of the time. Mm.
0: Matthew, I'm, this is very closing. I know a lot of people that have made it th- this far through the conversation would be extremely interested to keep tabs on what you do and how you think and how you're positioning the portfolio. Is the best place to go the the monthly and quarterly letters that are available on the wilson asset management website or or are there things that you do like do you do a lot of webinars and things like
1: that yeah we're starting to do a a few more webinars these days but um if if you go through and sign up to our um weekly email we we obviously um send them out weekly um with some of the insights but yeah, the quarterlies, uh, we try to send out quarterlies. Um, we've got the monthly NTAs, which have a little bit of a snapshot. Um, mm. but we're going to start doing webinars more often now as well, just trying to, you know, because obviously the, the market is moving a lot. We just want to keep people up to speed with what's happening and how we're seeing things. So uh, mm. just look out for some more webinars coming from us at Wilson Asset Management. Yeah,
0: great. I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone that's interested in, in the things that we've spoken about today and and um, seeing what's like in the portfolios and those types of things. And a special shout-out before we close out to the Australian Shareholders Association who put this together for us. Um, big badge of honour for me Um representing the Australian Shareholders Association here on the Australian Investors Podcast. So, Matthew, I I do really appreciate you taking some time out. You've probably got a busy day. Uh, It's probably company time now, and then tonight it will be uh, macro time yet again. So I really appreciate you taking some time to join me on the show today.
1: No, thanks, I Enjoyed the conversation. It's been great.